Just out of curiosity, by those of you who are in the sanctuary this morning, how many of you have been a part of Knox since 2011? Raise your hand. All right. That's great to see you all. So you know, not everyone else does, but you know that back in 2011, we started a new sermon tradition here at Knox. In 2011, I began a new sequence of sermons based in part on what I heard Reverend Dan Newhall, the Reverend Dr. Dan Newhall, did throughout his 40 years of ministry. And I began preaching on one particular book of the Hebrew Scriptures each fall. Then in Advent would look in particular at the prophets in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament, then would go through a gospel through the time from stretching from January through to Easter, and then would often look at the epistles, the book of Acts in the summer. It was a great way to explore with you the breadth, the depth, the eclecticism of our scriptures, to look at some of the broad range of texts that we have. So, back in 2011, you'll surely remember we started with the book of Genesis. So, going book by book this fall, we come to 1 Samuel. And we started that series last Sunday looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1. We read about Hannah, who was one of the two wives of Elkanah. The other wife of Elkanah was Penina, and she was able to have children. Hannah initially was not. And this was a dire position for a person in her time and place, for a woman to be in, in that time when so much of identity, opportunity, security was tied into having children and a male child in particular. So, Hannah prayed for a child and a son specifically. When her family went to Jerusalem to uh, one of these pilgrimages that Jewish people of that time would do, she went to the temple and prayed that God would give her a son and promised God in her desperation that if you'll give me a son, I will dedicate him to you. Eli, the priest at the temple, saw her moving her lips, but no words coming out. He accused her of drunkenness. She said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm simply pouring my heart out to God, yearning for a son. And Eli said, may God grant you that request. Eli joined his prayers with hers. And God answered that prayer. Hannah, we read later in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, has a son and names him Samuel, which means the Lord hears. Then when Samuel was of a certain age, we aren't sure exactly what this age was, whether it was three or four, perhaps age 12 or even a little older, she then returns to the temple. They take another pilgrimage, and when they do, she brings this son to Eli. And she says, Eli, you might remember me from that time years ago when I prayed for a son. Well, God answered my prayer, and I promised to dedicate him to God. And so here is my son. Please train him as a priest that his life may be consecrated for God's purposes. Eli agrees, but before Hannah leaves, she heads to the temple, and she offers a prayer. And this prayer sings. It sings so much that scholars over time have concluded it probably was a song that was sung by the ancient Hebrew people and was incorporated into the book of 1 Samuel by an editor. It's called Hannah's Song, and you're going to hear it today, not read, but sung. As we prepare for this singing of God's Word, let's pray. 
Loving God, we thank you for the precious gift of your word and pray that you would illumine our minds and hearts as we hear it now, that you might speak to us today, challenge us, grant us encouragement, direct us in your ways by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a time when many of us are 
returning to school. It's a time when many parents are once again dropping their kids off at school, and this is also a time where some of us are even bringing college-age children or adults at this point to begin a new phase in their educational life. Well, my niece Olivia and my nephew Peter are both starting as freshmen at University of Michigan. They join, of course, Ava Ferrante from this congregation. You might remember she gave a sermon for graduation Sunday not long ago. She's starting at University of Michigan as well. My sister Connie and her husband Ben, my brother Chris and his wife Jane recently took trips out to Michigan that they might leave their daughter Olivia and son Peter respectively under the care and training of University of Michigan's faculty and staff. And I imagine as they left their children at U of M, I haven't yet left a daughter of mine at college, though that day is coming, but I have left her at school before, and I imagine they might have been feeling something like this. On one hand, they were excited about what lay ahead, thrilled for the new opportunities, adventures that lay before them, and particularly when they brought them to University of Michigan, knowing that heading from Colorado and up in the Bay Area, they were going to get a sense of a new climate, a new part of the country, have new experiences. And I bet they wondered, what would their friendship groups look like? What passions, what new interests, what intellectual curiosities might arise for them, what sense of vocation might emerge. Might they find a life partner here or in the years ahead? Lots of questions arise, but probably fear and some trepidation too as they head out into that uncertain future and for parents as they return leaving the child, the adult now in that new college environment. And I imagine that was somewhat of what Hannah felt as she left Samuel under the tutelage of the priest Eli. We aren't sure exactly what age Samuel was, but he might have been 12 or even a little bit older, and there was a way that Hannah was depositing him at Temple University at Jerusalem, for there he was going to be trained as a priest. And I imagine she felt some of the many feelings that parents do as they leave a child at school and especially as they bring them off to a new state and college. There is this uncertain future into which they are now stepping. Well, I got to see my niece Olivia's graduation in person, and I loved what the speaker at that graduation service shared about the specific future that those graduates were heading into, that college students are in right now. This particular speaker was a graduate of the school and had since gone on to run an investment firm that specialized in socially responsible investing. And he was especially familiar with looking ahead to the future looking at trends, trying to see what was coming. And he said to these high school graduates who would then be freshmen at college, here is what I see in your future, VUCA. VUCA is what lies ahead. VUCA is an acronym that stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. This speaker said, you're heading out into a VUCA world, so get ready for VUCA. And I thought when I heard that, yes, 
That is the world right now, especially for those in school, especially for those in college or those getting set to graduate. It is a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment into which they are heading. The pandemic has drastically upended life as we know it. When the COVID-19 pandemic first began, many of us thought the quarantine might last a few weeks, oh, maybe a few months at most. Now, more than a year and a half later, there is still great uncertainty. What will the future look like? What will school look like? What will work look like? In person, remote, some mix of those two. What safety precautions will be in place? What will happen with the Delta variant and this fourth surge? This is a VUCA time. The environmental crisis has posed big questions before us about the future. Will cars soon be a thing of the past? I was passing a golf course as I was coming to church today, wondering, will that be a thing of the past, or will it be transformed into a kind of desert landscape, as so many lawns may well be in the future with the drought? What will energy use look like in the future? What will our lifestyles be like, given what we know of environmental challenges we face today? These are VUCA times. For many of us, January 6th injected a great deal of political uncertainty into the mix. That day we saw the work of the elected representatives of the United States halted, and the space where authority to make such decisions rested was temporarily taken over by an insurgency. This happened in the United States in 2021. Will that represent an aberration, quickly corrected, we wonder, or a portend of yet greater political instability to come? It was a VUCA moment. The protests that erupted after the killing of George Floyd, protests that have erupted locally following the killing of Anthony McLean, they were a powerful awakening for many in this country of the evils of racism, and they posed this poignant question, will we dare shape our future to be an anti-racist one? That was a VUCA moment. Our times are full of VUCA moments, aren't they? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And friends, one of the great blessings of getting to read ancient texts with all of you each and every Sunday is it reminds us the times we are in, these are not the only times that have been known in human history and not the only times that God's people have lived in and had to face important challenges. And these are not the only days of VUCA. We read, in fact, of some important VUCA times in Scripture. If you wanted to locate a particular period of biblical history that was surely replete with volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, it would be the times we read about in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. This period in the history of God's people was one of enormous change and deep wondering as to what the future might hold for God's people and where parents wondered, what would the future look like for my children, whether I leave them at Temple University or whether they stay at home? What does the future hold for them? Prior to the times that are described in the book of 1 Samuel, the political organization of ancient Israel might be called a tribal confederacy. That was the term given it to it by the famous scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, Norman Gottwald, tribal confederacy. 
the people Scripture identifies as God's people were connected to each other in that form of political organization we read about in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, primarily in terms of their family groups and their tribal affiliations. If you read the opening of 1 Samuel, you'll read that Elkanah and Hannah are not described as members of the broader people of Israel. Instead, they are listed first by their family by their kinship group, that is, and then by their tribe. It's stated that Elkanah was of the family of Zuf and the tribe of Ephraim, family, tribe. Those were primary identity markers. And yet, in that form of political organization we read about in Deuteronomy, there was a common law that all 12 tribes of ancient Israel held, the law given by God to the people through Moses. They lived in a common region, that region that was east of the Mediterranean Sea, though each individual tribe had their own particular area of land. They shared a common belief in one God and creator of heaven and earth, Yahweh, and they had known a single galvanizing liberator in Moses and then in Joshua. But there were significant ways where social and political life happened at a tribal and family level. You could call it a decentralized form of social and political organization. And then, in the book of 1 Samuel, as this book unfolds, we read about a massive transition that takes place for the people of ancient Israel where they move from that kind of looser tribal confederacy to a period of monarchy. Samuel who we read of is born to Hannah, will be the kingmaker, the king-namer. It is he who will name Saul and then David as the first kings of ancient Israel. Samuel will do that. Now, Samuel will warn God's people, hey, I don't think you want a king. He will warn them specifically of the dangers of militarism, of centralizing power in one person's hands, but the people of God say, no, we want a king. And so Samuel relents, and we read in 1 Samuel of this move to a monarchy, and that kind of dramatic shift in political organization, that is a VUCA period of history, a VUCA time for God's people, and it was exactly in that time period, that broader shift taking place, that we read Hannah presents her son Samuel to Eli the priest. It is in that context that she offers this prayer and song that we heard sung this morning. Inspired by God in the midst of a profound VUCA moment full of uncertainty, volatility, complexity, and ambiguity, Hannah offers this great affirmation inspired by God. She states, God is at work in VUCA times. God is powerfully at work in VUCA moments. God is my strength, Hannah proclaims, and you might note her prayer looks back to how God has been at work in the past, in her past and in the history of ancient Israel. Her prayer or song looks back to how God answered her prayer and gave her a son, how God presented in similar language to the language we find in Psalm 113, brought a child to one who had been barren before. And we read in Hannah's song how the one who is barren has born seven, 
Some scholars think maybe Hannah by this time actually has seven children, not just Samuel. She can look back and celebrate how God answered that prayer and the sense of God being at work, lifting up the poor, helping the needy. It also points back to that great time in the history of ancient Israel when God freed them from enslavement in Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea to a new land, to a new way of being in the world. There is a wonderful power in times of great uncertainty to look back and remember God's goodness in the past, how God has blessed us with good things like the children, either in our families or in our community. God has blessed us in wonderful ways. To look back to how God has been at work liberating the slaves, bringing justice to the oppressed, claiming that, and knowing that God who worked in the past may just be at work now and in the future. But Hannah's prayer does something else. It not only looks back, it looks to the present. There is a powerful intimacy with God that this prayer expresses. She speaks of God holding the very pillars of the earth here and now, the one who created all things, ruling over all things today, right now. She speaks of a God who intervenes for justice, lifting up the poor from the ash heap, and this justice appears present now as if it's occurring, breaking in this very moment. There's a wonderful sense of the present in Hannah's prayer that God isn't only someone who worked in the past, but is at work right now. But of course, one of the things that we look at the most in Hannah's prayer is not even how it looks back or looks to the present, but how it points to the future and particularly this reference near the end to God bringing strength to the king and to God's anointed. That language looks forward, of course, to the monarchy and specifically to the arrival of King David, one who in some ways would in other ways would not realize the hopes of God's people. It was a prayer, this song of Hannah that looks forward to what God has yet to do, the promise that God would be at work through a coming king. And as Christians, when we read that language, how can we not look yet further to that king who would come, that son of David who would usher in a kingdom to which all people would be welcome, a kingdom of healing, of salvation for all, of truth-telling, of radical hospitality, and of community, that king we call Jesus the Christ, that king and Messiah. It is in Him, after all, that we believe the promise of forgiveness and new life, of God's work with us in a wonderfully new way would be answered and realized, a promise we receive by faith. And with Christ's resurrection, we look forward to a day when that promised kingdom we saw Jesus living out in His ministry would be known in full. This prayer of Hannah looks forward to what God has yet to do. In a powerful VUCA moment in history, Hannah pauses in a temple to pray, and she remembers God's goodness in the past, God's activity in the present, and looks to what God has yet to do in a glorious future. So friends, what are we to do in these days of VUCA? 
What are we to do when we head out to college, as some of you will be doing or have done, as we leave our children, nay, adults, off at college, as many of you have done or will be preparing to do? Or as we set out into this VUCA world still uncertain, how should we approach it? And I would say from Hannah's song, we can approach it with the grand affirmation, God is at work powerfully in VUCA times, and to recall that, to savor it, to cling to it. Let's follow Hannah's example. Let's make prayer a regular part of our lives. This is a time when many people are starting school or returning to work, so it's a great opportunity to commit to specific prayer practices that you, like Hannah, might regularly develop that kind of intimacy with God where particularly in days of fear and uncertainty, even of terror, you might recall the power that underlies all things and that is in the work, at work in the world for love and justice. Make worship a part of your regular ritual, daily prayer in whatever form works best for you. Some of us gather still at 7.30 a.m. on Zoom the way we did on a live streaming before, and you're welcome to join that or use an app like Pray As You Go, whatever form works best for you to recall the promises of God in Scripture and to sit with God regularly. This is a wonderful invitation of God's people in VUCA times. So, friends, in to this VUCA world, remember what Hannah has proclaimed. God is at work. And remember it as a congregation. So, the tr- for the truth is, these are VUCA days for Knox, aren't they? Today, we are saying farewell to a beloved youth minister and outreach director in Annalise Thomas. Annalise has been with us five years and made it through the pandemic, thanks be to God. We bid her farewell as her last Sunday today. Now, don't be surprised if you see her and especially your family in days to come as she is still figuring out with her family what their future church connection might be, but we've been so blessed to have her with us. And now there is this time where she is stepping down from her role, and while there are some wonderful possibilities ahead and promises, and I will have announcements for you very soon, I anticipate, together with our HR committee on the staffing front, we're still in that in-between time, in between the staff we've had with Annalise and Allie and the staff we will know. And so it's a VUCA time. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, but God is at work, and the God we see lifted up in Hannah's prayer we trust will be with us in the journey and has great things still in store. So let's follow Hannah's lead, not just as individuals, but as a congregation, and come to God in prayer and trust that the one who holds all things is at work, especially at work in VUCA times. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.